Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 128, The Apostle. First, I want to thank our newest Patreon. Well, not from Patreon, actually just a, a donator through PayPal, but it's Igor Tabakov. Sorry, I forgot to mention him last time. Uh, I've just been sort of out of sorts with the holidays, got a bit overwhelmed, disconnected, and I missed some things. So uh, it took me a while to get back to Igor, but big thanks for his donation to the podcast. And with that, let's get into it because I know this is an episode lots of you have been waiting maybe years for. So last time, We talked about how Bulgarian culture was advancing and the growing role of theatrical plays uh, in popular culture and the development of a Bulgarian identity. We mentioned how a small but growing women's movement had started to make advancements in education and the social status of women in Bulgaria. More banks and credit companies also brought further chances for economic development. In Serbia, the prince came of age and began moving his country closer to Russia as the sultan ran through one grand vizier after another as the wheels began to come off the Tanzimat reforms. But the main story of the last episode was the final choosing of an exarch and the accompanying breakup with the patriarchate. Despite attempts by exarch Antim I and his followers to mend the relationship with the patriarchate, he was ultimately excommunicated and the exarchate declared schismatic. So, Bulgaria now has an independent church, but which regional churches will be included within its authority is yet to be determined. Now, while I would love to get into all that today, we don't have time because this episode is going to cover basically all of the events of 1872 for about the the kind of BRCC, which is, you know, what we covered last time. So last time we got everything up to 1873. But we had to skip everything about Levski and the BRCC because that is just a whole other long story. And today we're telling that long story. So to recap a little bit, remember, by 1872, Levski had established a whole network of underground revolutionary committees throughout Bulgaria from his base in Lovic. Meanwhile, BRCC members based in Bucharest have been focusing more on writing pamphlets and obtaining foreign support, especially from Serbia. This angered Levski, who believed it was a waste of time to seek foreign support prior to a successful uprising against the Ottomans. All of this resulted in an ever-growing distance between the BRCC elements north and south of the Danube. Now, in the early days of 1872, Levski spread the news that a general assembly was to be held in the spring between the two BRCC factions in an attempt to resolve their differences. While the word was being sent out, Levski himself traveled to the Trojan Monastery to set up a secret cell there. But then, disaster struck one of Levski's most trusted men. The revolutionary Angel Kunchev had been tasked by Levski to organize underground efforts in northern Bulgaria, and in March arrived in Rusay to cross back into Romania. However, he found the fellow BRCC member who who was supposed to assist him in crossing the Danube had been arrested. Instead of turning to the local BRCC committee, which could have assisted him, he made his own plan to cross the Danube via the regular boat service. 
Sounds simple, but to do this, he needed a passport and he did not have one. An old friend got him a ticket, which should have sufficed, but the Ottoman official checking tickets decided to ask to see his passport as well. Kunchev couldn't produce one, and, well, while he was being taken to the passport office to confirm that he did not have one, he made a run for it, and used his pistol to fire at the men running after him. However, all his shots missed, and realizing his situation was hopeless, Kunchev yelled, Long live Bulgaria, placed his pistol in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. It was a tragic moment, which initially spread panic in many BRCC cells, shocked by the loss of Kunchev. However, the good news was that there was nothing incriminating on Kunchev's person, and, well, Levski believed that the suicide was actually quite unnecessary because not having any kind of incriminating documents, there was no reason for the Ottomans to give him anything more than maybe a short prison sentence, and in theory, he should have been released fairly quickly. But, Regardless, despite this tragic loss, preparations for the April assembly continued. Participants arrived in Bucharest for the meeting throughout April, including Levski, who stayed with Lubin Karavelov, despite their disagreements. So you could say it was a positive sign that the two main figures of the BRCC's two factions were still on good enough terms. To protect his identity, Levski pretended to be a house servant of the people who owned the house that Karavelf was staying in, and basically spent his time doing various chores for the matron of the home and really making a good impression. Now, as more guests and uh, you know, kind of arrivals for the assembly trickled in, the participants had to come with half of a torn piece of paper given to them by Levski, which was to be matched with the other half in his possession. Ultimately, only 25 participants made it, as many committees had not managed to get a representative to Bucharest. As such, many of those 25 participants had to represent multiple secret committees. One rep participant had no fewer than 11, while Levski himself had a more modest three. The assembly elected Lubin Karavelf as its chairman and drew up rules for the BRCC, a kind of revised set of rules. Well, Karavelf's election may have seemed to indicate that his faction had won out, his views had actually, in the meantime, grown quite a bit closer to those of Levski. And ultimately, the program that was decided upon was much closer to Levski's beliefs than those of the kind of Karavelf uh, Bucharest faction of the BRCC previously. Now, I want to quote one little bit of the program, which I think is it makes an interesting distinction between Turks and Ottomans, well, a distinction I find important on this podcast. Now, in this you know, kind of document, they wrote that, quote, we are not rising against the Turkish people, but against the Turkish government and against those Turks who support and defend it. In a word, we regard as friends all people and nationals who sympathize with our holy and honorable cause, irrespective of their faith and race, end quote. So, you know, I think it is important to, to recognize that as much as the the kind of actions of the BRCC and the, the general broader set of Bulgarian revolutionaries are portrayed as a fight against the evil Turks, they themselves made it quite clear that they were not fighting a, a sort of ethnic group. They were fighting basically the Ottoman government uh, that was really kind of putting them down. And, you know, that a lot of Turks were obviously a part of that and so therefore kind of a part of their struggle. But I think it's an important distinction to make. Now, again, while the BRCC's new set of rules did generally follow Levski's beliefs, it did endorse Bulgaria being a, or it did not, sorry, endorse Bulgaria being a republic instead of a monarchy. That decision was left open to the future. Remember, Levski strongly advocated for a republic, but 
you know, many Bulgarians wanted to go with the monarchy. Now, overall, while Karavelov now had a very powerful formal role as the chairman of the BRCC and Levski did not, Levski was recognized as the chief apostle for all Bulgarians, or sorry, for all Bulgarian, Thrace, and Macedonia. So in essence, Levski had this sort of vague title, which was sort of singular and irreplaceable. And so instead of restricting him to a very specific role, he was given a kind of open-ended role, more befitting of his well, energy, dynamism, and his, uh, his kind of participation in the movement. Now, before it finished all of its activities, all the assembly members took the following oath on a Bible or cross along with a knife and a revolver, an enduring symbol of Bulgaria's revolutionary heroes, which you can see around on occasion. They swore, quote, I swear by the gospel, on my honor and by my country, before God and before the honorable sworn company, that all of that has been made known to me, I shall tell and reveal nothing to anyone unto death in the grave. I swear and promise that I will give my life and my possessions to the sacred cause. I swear and promise unconditional obedience to all the laws and commands of the sworn secret Central Bulgarian Revolutionary Committee, together with silence and secrecy concerning its affairs. And if, on the contrary, I become a traitor or a criminal, I agree to be pierced through with the weapons of this sworn company, which has the duty not only to protect me, but also to judge me. End quote. So I thought that that kind of uh, oath that was taken gives an interesting idea into the thinking of the Bulgarian Revolutionary Committee and, and how it operated and what it expected of its members. Now, once the assembly convened, the members returned to their various secret committees while Levski stayed in Bucharest to oversee the printing of 1,399 copies of those new rules which were to be distributed in Bulgaria. By mid-July, Levski crossed back into Bulgaria to continue his work and enforce the new program of the BRCC. Now, interestingly enough, at this time, Levski also posted bail for Christo Botev, but the poor man arrived in Bucharest completely destitute without any money, and Levski had already left, so it was a very nice gesture, but Christo Botev was still a bit out of luck. Now, Ironically enough, for the main that the the main challenge to Levski was actually faced on his arrival back into Bulgaria. Uh, in this problem was basically a lack of funds, despite the fact he had just posted this bail. The BRCC needed money desperately to buy weapons and smuggle them across the Danube. At this point, desperation was pushing BRCC members to use stronger tactics to ensure wealthier Bulgarian Chorbajis made the contributions they were supposed to, and Levski himself was doing much of this dangerous work. Several Chorbajis and even one church official were killed for refusing to aid or even threatening to out the committee's work. In one incident, Levski himself went to rob a Chorbaji who had refused to make a payment, However, he instead encountered a journeyman in the courtyard who recognized Levski and began to yell and attract attention. This forced Levski to kill him with a dagger, really the only time Levski is known to have killed a fellow Bulgarian. The incident really haunted Levski. He regretted that this had to happen and that things had turned out that way, but of course he went on with his work. And it's at this point I need to properly introduce a man named Dmitr Obshti in order to properly kind of understand the rest of this story. He was from a town in what's now Kosovo, and he had fought in the First Bulgarian Legion in one of the Chetas with Giuseppe Garibaldi in Italy, and even participated in the Cretan uprising. He sometimes butted heads with the revolutionary leaders of the BRCCs, but 
There was no denying he was about as experienced a fighter as you could find. By the 1870s, he was working with the BRCC in Bulgaria itself. The problems began to arise with his strong independence streak and disinterest in following rules. Levski had warned Obsti not to act on his own, but he frequently exceeded his mandate. Some in the BRCC believed that he should be killed before he got other members killed, while Obsti himself asked to be given a mandate to operate independently in Macedonia, but Levski rejected both ideas. Ultimately, Obsti and some of his compatriots proposed to rob a sort of mail caravan, which would be taking tax revenues from the region to the Ottoman government as it moved through a mountain pass in the Staraplanina. Levski didn't want this done yet, but Obsti's band went about it anyways. Initially, the robbery went very well. Only three armed men guarded the caravan, and the 14 Bulgarians who attacked it easily overpowered them and came away with a hefty sum of money. But despite its initial success, things very quickly unraveled when it came to light that the men Obsti had chosen to accompany him enjoyed rakia and bragging in equal measure and weren't so interested in the BRCC's strict code of secrecy that Obsti himself had also so often ignored. Once a few members of the bands were caught, names were extracted through torture, and the Ottoman police soon had a long list of people to search for, including Obsti himself. Soon, many of the senior BRCC members in the region had been arrested, and the organization there was effectively wiped out. Just one month after the initial robbery, Obsti was captured and told the Ottomans everything he knew, including substantial details about Levski's personal operations, what he looked like, and the operations of the Lovich Committee. Now, what had begun as a disaster for one regional BRCC cell had spread to the senior leadership of the organization. More and more arrests followed, resulting in yet more confessions, more names, and more details about Levski for the Ottoman authorities to use in their pursuit of him. Now, they've known Levski existed for quite a while, but they really have known very little about him, but now they had a lot of information. For example, they knew that, quote, he is from Carlival, he changes his name every week, he is of medium height with a light brown mustache, a reddish face, and when he speaks, one of his teeth appears a little outside. He raises his lip a little, and his eyes are large and variegated, end quote. So that's much better than the basically nothing that they had before, and, well, now they were much kind of, uh, they had much more of an advantage in trying to track Levski down. But it took quite a while for Levski to hear about the robbery and its aftermath, as he had been traveling in southern Bulgaria setting up more secret committees and implementing a reorganization plan designed to allow them to function more independently. Shortly after receiving a letter from the Lovich committee informing him of the situation, Levski was forced to flee Kotel in the middle of the night as police were searching for him. He escaped to Starozagora, where he received letters from Karavelov, arguing that in light of the dire situation, the uprising against the Ottomans should begin immediately. Levski, as well as several BRCC committees, strongly disagreed, believing they were not ready and that such an action would lead to a bloodbath in light of the recent setbacks they had faced and how they had affected the BRCC's operational integrity. Karavelov argued that Serbia and Montenegro might help if they rose now, but Levski was far more skeptical. He had heard those kinds of hopes many times in the past, and many times he had been disappointed. Now, Levski still knew he had an order from Karavelov, and it couldn't be ignored. He was a believer in the, you know, the operational structure and the rules of the BRCC. 
And so Levski asked other committees whether they felt they were ready, and the answer was an overwhelming no. Most committees had nowhere near enough firearms and needed at least another year to prepare and to really have any chance of success. Meanwhile, the Ottomans had formed a special commission to investigate the robbery and the BRCC more widely. As more resources flowed into the effort, they made more and more progress towards finding Levski and destroying the BRCC. Looking at the entire situation, Levski decided to make the risky move of returning to Bucharest. There, he could discuss things with Karavelf and generally be safer from the Ottoman police. Levski made his way north to Pazarjik and to Karlovo and received warnings that he should travel through Constantinople because it would be safer. But he pressed on through the cold December weather and the mountains already blanketed with snow. Levski debated whether to attempt to free some of the prisoners that had been recently captured by the Ottomans and whether he should visit Lovech despite, obviously, a lot of police presence there. He ultimately descended against aiding the prisoners, but did decide to pass through Lovech on his way to Romania. He left for Lovech on Christmas Day, 1872. After spending the night there, he continued his journey. But he was stopped by Ottoman police on the way, but luckily for him, as he'd done many times before, he won their trust by being bold. Reading the kind of details of Levski's interactions with Ottoman officials is always very entertaining, because he would basically do things like walk up to them and start chatting or declare, oh, you must know me. I'm so-and-so from this place. And basically, he was always so confident that they just sort of believed him. There are cases where Ottoman officials, you know, one says, oh, maybe that's uh, one of the guys we're looking for. And the other Ottoman guy says, what are you, stupid? He came right up and introduced himself. Like, of course, he's not someone we're looking for. So it's an, an interesting little bit of Levski's kind of techniques and how he managed to stay on the run for so long. So he got out of that situation and soon arrived at a Khan. Remember, a Khan is like an inn, you know, a little hotel kind of place. Uh, remember that from the episode about traveling in Bulgaria? So this Khan was in a village which was on the way to Ternovo, which was on the way to Ruse and Bucharest. Now, he spent the night there, and in the morning, a troop of Ottoman uh, Zaptes arrived at the Khan, and, well, Leski was just returning from the outhouse, just had a morning relieving of himself, and he was informed that Ottoman officials were there and ran out the back door. However, as he tried, tried to jump over a fence, something like his pants or his shoes got caught, and... Basically, the Ottomans discovered him and started to open fire. Levski was grazed by a bullet, but not hurt significantly. But still, this is enough to kind of catch him off guard, and he fell to the ground and was soon overpowered by the Ottomans as he furiously fought back. And so, just like that, after many years on the run, Levski had finally been caught. However, the Ottomans didn't quite know yet that it was Levski, and so it took, well, a lot of asking questions of other people before his uh, identity could be confirmed. Now, Levski later described these events to the Ottoman court, stating, quote, Of my two comrades, the named Christo used to run a pub near Lovic. He knew me as a man from Turnival. At one time, Christo left the pub. I had not seen him for a long time, and well, this time I was going from Lovic to Turnival. On the way, Nikola from Lovic, whom I saw this time, told me, I will stay in the village of Kakrina if you want to stay too. He took me to the pub of Christo from Lovech, whom I had not seen for a long time, and that evening we stayed there. At 10 o'clock in the morning, when I went outside, I saw a gunman in front of the door. I asked him who he was. He grabbed my arm, and I had two revolvers. I took them out and wounded the man who caught me in the arm, and then I started running. But the holder did not let me go. His comrades arrived, hit me on the head, and I fell there. 
They caught me and sent me to Lovech, there to Turnoval, and from there here. When I was captured, Christo the innkeeper was not there. His cattle had been lost, so he went to look for them, and he was later captured in his home. End quote. So there's kind of Levski's vision of these events, but there, there's quite a few versions of what exactly happened uh, to various places, and sort of I gave you one of those versions, but the, the details aren't super, super important. What's important to know is that you know, Levski was captured. Now, there are many stories and theories about who betrayed Levski, but it seems that essentially it was a series of betrayals, with one person after another revealing more and more names and information to the Ottoman authorities. But if blame can be assigned to one person, it would be Dmitry Obsti, whose recklessness kicked off the chain of events which ended with Levski's capture. As he mentioned, Levski was taken from this village to Turnovo, and there he was interrogated. He steadfastly refused to identify himself or give any other information, though he did remark rather humorously that as a child his father called him Petko, and when he was asked if this was his name, he simply replied, alas, my name is not Petko. So, yeah, he was really messing with the, the interrogators and annoying them quite a bit. But eventually, as I mentioned, the Ottomans had a lot of evidence that he was Vasilevsky, and finally he was forced to basically admit who he was. When asked who his compatriots were, he simply stated, The whole Bulgarian people are my comrades. I have worked with the whole people and I know nobody. Again, he was really in, in kind of annoying his interrogators with these answers. Now, members of the local BRCC committee met to possibly free Levski because obviously they were panicking and needed to do something, but only two members showed up and they knew that, well, they just didn't have a chance. The next day, Levski was sent to Sofia under armed guard to face trial. He arrived on the 4th of January, 1873 and endured further days of interrogation. Many BRCC committees assumed Levski would be sent to Constantinople and planned to ambush and free him along the way but his trial would be in Sofia like those of the other BRCC members who had been recently captured by the Ottomans, so no luck for that plan. Thus, when the commission came to try Levski, everyone else had already been sentenced, though their punishments had not yet been finalized. Levski's trial would be the coup de grace for the Ottoman officials. Now, ironically enough, the Konak, the kind of administrative building where the trial was held, would later be turned into Bulgaria's royal palace and now houses two museums in central Sofia. So if you've ever been to Sofia, you've probably seen the big yellow former royal palace in the center of the city. And while that building is, you know, a later structure, that building is essentially where the trial was held. Now, the trial began properly on January the 5th. Levski was at this point frank about who he was, but attempted to mislead the judges about the nature of his work and the nature of the BRCC's work. But by this time, the Ottomans knew enough to understand that they were not getting anything useful out of Levski and that they really shouldn't believe any of this. After five days of trial in which all this kind of continued, the court found Levski guilty of inciting armed rebellion, treason, distributing subversive literature, and murder. He was condemned to death by hanging. The sentences of the other BRCC members had already been sent to the Grand Vizier for approval. Now, Dmitry Obsti was the only one besides Levski to be given a death sentence, and he was hanged in Sofia on January the 10th. Overall, interestingly enough, the trials had been conducted quite fairly, and the prison conditions, with a few exceptions here and there, had gotten better than the initial kind of really bad ones, and 
the reason for all this essentially is that the Ottomans were very eager not to provoke foreign backlash, uh, as the government was at this point heavily dependent on foreign creditors for its operations, and it just couldn't afford to uh, annoy the foreign press or foreign governments with its treatment of these men, and so it tried to be at least fairly fair. Ultimately, when the sentences were handed down, besides the death sentences for Obsti and Levski, the others got three years in prison on the low end to life in prison on the high end. A few were also exiled to Anatolia. Now, it took until the 22nd of January for the Sultan to confirm Levski's death sentence, but it would not be carried out until February 19th, leaving Levski to spend weeks in a kind of purgatory, knowing his fate but being helpless to do anything more about it. Now, when a priest came to take his final confession, there are slightly conflicting stories about what was said. But in essence, he stated that he had done nothing wrong and that he had done everything for God and Bulgaria. And with that, Vasilevsky was hanged and his body left dangling for some time for all to see. Now, the ultimate fate of his bones remains unknown and entire books have been written about their possible location. I own one, but uh, I couldn't really get through it. I sort of lost the, 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 I think it got a little off track. But anyways, in the end, only Levski and Obshti were hanged. Obshti, despite his previous revolutionary work, is essentially condemned by Bulgarians for his role in Levski's downfall and his general recklessness. He's the only one of these BRCC revolutionaries with no monuments and no commemorations. Levski, on the other hand, is universally admired and beloved. In Bulgaria, he is so admired by, again, everyone, by devoutly orthodox, by resolute atheists, by the communists, by fascists, Democrats, would-be autocrats. I mean, everyone on every side of the political spectrum respects and adores Levski. He's an interesting national figure, really, for that reason. It's, it's rare that you have someone who's so kind of revered. I mean, even thinking of someone like George Washington in the United States, you know, people will bring up his things like his ownership of slavery. And so even though someone like Washington for a long time was this glorious hero that was sort of universally admired, ultimately there's a lot of criticism of him. But Levski, you don't really see that kind of criticism. And I think that's fascinating. You know, even the the communists, despite Levski's kind of, you know, his religious side, the communists, uh, I, I wasn't able to find almost anything bad sent about him. I mean, they wouldn't dare to have uh, sort of decried him for that reason. So ultimately, Levski's status as a kind of hero apostle is effectively undisputed. Today, Bulgaria has 131 monuments to Vasil Levski, with it a further 19 scattered around the world. There are three museums dedicated solely to him, and his portrait hangs just about everywhere, including the office of the president. I could go on, but needless to say, a lot of things, schools and streets and uh, football clubs are named after him in Bulgaria. Now, without him, the future of the BRCC is in question. I mean, he, he's been a kind of driving force behind it. He's been both in his actual actions, you know, actually traveling around the country and setting up committees and doing all this work, as well as his status as a symbol, as a revered person, someone everyone could respect and someone who... You know, we've seen time and time again when people are having disagreements, Levski is very level-headed and he's good at, at taking criticism and trying to kind of analyze it and come up with a good solution that makes everyone uh, get along and move forward with the project. And so with him gone, the movement has lost an almost incalculable amount. So next time, 
We'll cover how the BRCEC is going to attempt to continue its work building the groundwork for revolution with the loss of its most prolific and inspiring member. As we move closer and closer towards a series of events which will bring Bulgaria its independence and end this particular podcast uh, chapter, this, this, uh, this season. So as we move into 2021, it's currently New Year's Eve here. You can all look forward to that. And I look forward to spending another year making this podcast for you and hearing from you all, hopefully meeting some of you once that's safer and easier to do. And so wishing you all a happy new year and all the kind of success and health and good podcasting for 2021. So that's it for me and I'll catch you in the next one.